Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to this evening's um, debate and discussion. This is a, a, host, a jointly hosted um, debate between the LSE Arts, um, LSE Arts panel and the, and I've got to read this out properly to make sure I get it right, Center for Study of Global Governance. And it's part of the Viewing Restricted um, exhibition and debate program that has been uh, sponsored by that group. And the exhibition, Viewing Restricted, is still on in the main uh, theater, sorry, the main exhibition space outside. And it's been kept open after the event tonight. So if you want to go and have a look at the photographic project that deals with alternative ways of representing poverty after this event, please feel free to go out and, uh, and have a look at that as well. Um, I'm, my name is Paul Lowe. I'm chairing tonight's uh, debate. I'm the course director of the MA Photojournalism and Documentary Photography at London College of Communication, and I'm a photographer that's worked a lot over the last 20 years on issues around um, uh, global conflict, poverty, representation, and things like that. Um, we've got Max Horton with us, who is the course leader of the MA Photojournalism at Westminster and the editor of Photo 8 uh, magazine. Julian Stolbras, who is reader in uh, art at the Courtauld Institute, has written, ex written extensively on the visualization of war, conflict, and suffering. Um, Renzo Martins, an artist who's produced a lot of very uh, intriguing and very challenging works about the way that the interactions between um, the media, the aid organizations, and the developing world. And uh, Lily Huiraki, who is the um, Policy Research Director. The Policy is a joint research uh, body between the LSE and the Learning College of Communication looking at media in contemporary world affairs. And she's Professor of Media and Communications at the LSE, and again has written extensively on the sort of issues that we're going to be talking about tonight. So each speaker is going to speak for approximately 10 to 12 minutes, uh, although Renzo will be showing an, an extended excerpt from his film, um, episode three, is it episode three? Which is also being shown tomorrow night between six and eight in the new theater. There's a, the entire film will be shown tomorrow evening. Um, so we'll have about an hour or so of presentations, and then about half an hour or whatever um, after that of hopefully some very lively discussion and debate. So thank you very, very much. And I'm going to hand over to, to Lily to start off the evening. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So, good evening, everyone. I will attempt to speak to the title of this event, which is The Future of Picturing the World, but I do not promise a definitive answer as an academic, I will just tell a story. And the story is a story of major shifts in humanitarian communication from this, and we can see here the iconic pictures of uh, the Ethiopian famine in 1984, to this, which is Bono's uh, entrepreneurial philanthropy, um, a, a team up of his brand Red with mega brands like Armani, whereby you can just buy your money and you also donate to the African poor. Um, I'll get back to that uh, later on. So I define humanitarian communication uh, rather broadly here to refer to any kind of appeal uh, that strategically seeks to mobilize emotion in the service of a moral cause. And the cause I'm speaking uh, about tonight is of course um, public action on distant suffering. And the reason why I look into humanitarian communication is because this form of communication can tell us something important um, about why it is so significant to picture the world. The fundamental claim of humanitarianism is that 
it is important to picture the world because by seeing suffering, by watching human vulnerability, we may be motivated to do something about it. That's the fundamental claim. And it sounds very true and very simple. And yet, humanitarian communication is communication full of struggle. The story I'm going to talk is really a story of struggle. And this is a struggle precisely over the ways in which, in which this type of communication is trying to define the concept of the human. What is human and what is humanity? And how we can define it, portray it, and picture it. Sorry, I don't like this. So from this perspective, this is a story not only of the shifts in styles of campaigning, but also it is a, sto a story of shifts in public registers of emotion, in moral norms, and in forms of collective agency towards vulnerable others. Yes, Dan. Uh, so let me start, first of all, with a few uh, words on the concepts of humanity, public emotion, and moral norms before I start the story of shifts. Humanitarian campaigning in its historical styles reflects and reproduces a particular conception of politics. This is a conception of politics that gets its legitimacy not only uh, from um, its principles of democratic governance, for example, electing a government or, or, or a parliament, but also from its universal conception of welfare, caring for vulnerable people. From the articulation, in other words, of justice with pity. Now this is a conception of politics uh, that, as most of you would recognize, is born in the Enlightenment. It's the time when the term humanity stopped referring simply to a biological category of being human and became a political category of great significance. It is our common humanity that endows us with the right to have rights, just to play a bit on Hannah Arendt's formulation. Now this articulation of justice with pity emerged at the time when Le Miserable of the French Revolution came under the radar of public sensibilities and became citizens with the right uh, to dignity and a good life. There is no doubt that this moral emphasis on pity and on caring for vulnerable others has significantly changed and comforted the lives of many suffering populations, which is a good thing. At the same time, however, let us be aware that it also established a particular conception of public action, of politics and public action, that relies heavily on two things. First of all, the spectacle of suffering, the act of witnessing suffering others whereby the visual immediacy of those who suffer presses upon us the urgency to act on it. And second, it relies on the language of pity, which is the language of grand emotions, emotions of indignation and guilt or shame or emotions of tenderheartedness and empathy. Now what I want to show today is that this dominant style of humanitarian communication seems to be changing subtly but profoundly. What happens is that contemporary campaigning, or at least a strand of it, challenges directly that uh, primacy of witnessing, that seeing suffering and seeing people who suffer. And is also challenging, therefore, the language of emotions, moving towards a completely different way of engaging 
with humanitarian causes that are more playful and produce more effortless forms of engaging with, uh, with uh, activism, altruistic activism. But first things first. So let me start with a story of, of the traditional styles of campaigning, which both rely on the dominance of pity, witnessing and grand emotion. So here are my examples, Oxfam 1958, Red Cross 1961. Both rely on a documentary mode of representing suffering in its plain reality. So we've got the mother-child visual complex here, which is a classic imagery of the ideal victim. Uh, the Red Cross campaign, again, relies on the raw depiction of naked or half-naked bodies. And this is a kind of a self-abandoned nudity, if you like, that exposes emaciated ribs and legs. Now, which are the historical registers of emotion that are associated with this type of campaigning? And I'm here drawing, of course, on Stan Cohen's seminal work on states of denial. It is guilt and shame or indignation. Failure to act on these people's suffering is complicity. It is failure to acknowledge the fact that we have participated historically in perpetuating uh, their suffering. So this is on the one hand historical guilt that is of course embedded into the colonial uh, and post-colonial legacies uh, that are evoked very often in these campaign texts, but it is also personal guilt, uh, sorry, personal shame. By denying these realities, by not doing anything, we are also responsible for them. Sometimes, often, particularly in uh, um, organizations like Amnesty International and also in left-wing organizations uh, that have activated suffering as a signifier for political denunciation, guilt and shame turns into indignation. I will just remind you of Amnesty International's early 90s slogan, which was outrage into action. And yet, these cumulative flows of negative emotion have led to what many have called compassion fatigue. People get tired of images of suffering that are so far removed from their own sense of what the human is that they are left with a sense of powerlessness, that there is nothing I can do attitude. This leads me to the second type of campaigns I want to uh, draw your attention to tonight. These are positive image campaigns like these, and they have developed as a response to the earlier ones. The similarity is that they also use pictures to portray humanity. They use photorealism. The difference is that these campaigns make a very different claim to what humanity is. They um, embed uh, or articulate a, particular, a different conception of the human, which now centers on the sufferer's agency and dignity. We can see here that the sufferer is a person who is capable of some form of action. She is an agent with a smiling face, often an aim and an age. The donor is often singularized in these campaigns as well. It is a you, a personalized you. You can do something to change their lives. You can, for example, sponsor a child, yeah? Even though perhaps Save the Children uh, does not really uh, do that. Um, now, which are the historical registers of emotion associated with such campaigns? 
Stan Cohen again would call it, would call that uh, uh, configuration of emotions empathy, sympathy, and tender-heartedness. It is all about feeling for distant others who now share our own humanity, who are people like us. And it is also about expressing a politically sensitive generosity that goes beyond charity, beyond donation, to support structural changes, to empower those people to, to take the future in their hands. And yet, there is compassion fatigue associated with these pictures as well. They may indeed manage to address some of the moral deficiencies of the previous, of the shock effect campaigns, and the dehumanization argument in particular, but they do conceal the fundamental asymmetries that continue to uh, organize, if you like, and to structure the relationship between the West and the developing world. An asymmetry that ultimately limits, and for some people it even cancels, the capacity of the interventionist project to promote sustainable social change. So people have become suspicious of that as well. Spectacles of happiness, hope, self-determination, when power relations are still in place. Well, the cynics might say, if these people are already taken care of, why should I help? Now, despite these differences, and I'm now summing up the first part of my talk to go into the new campaigns, the new style of campaigns, despite these differences, the two types of appeal I've just presented have similar orientations in two important ways. First, they share um, a reliance on photorealism, on the witnessing of suffering, seeing those people. And second, they share a belief in the power of the grand emotions of pity. In seeking us to confront with the realities of grand emotion in two of its most authentic forms, on the one hand, shocking destitution, and on the other hand, hopeful self-determination, these appeals manage to throw into relief precisely those instabilities of meaning that surround the concept of the human. Either by dehumanizing distant others beyond our, um, our reach, or by overhumanizing them according to our own norms, these historical styles of campaigning always run the risk of moral numbness, of doubt, cynicism, and fatigue. And here is the only text, the only quote I would like you to, to read before I move on. This comes from Boltanski's Distant Suffering, I think a seminal book that discusses issues of humanitarianism and morality, where he asks about today, why is it so difficult nowadays to become indignant and to make accusations? Or in another sense, to become emotional and feel sympathy, or at least to believe for any length of time without falling into uncertainty in the validity of one's own indignation or one's own sympathy. And it is in the light of precisely this challenge as it is captured here that I now turn to discuss the emergence of a newer style of humanitarian appeals that coexists with the previous two but departs from them in very important ways. It problematizes photorealism, no images of suffering, it breaks with the registers of pity, no grand emotions. And this is why I call that a post-humanitarian sensibility. I'll conclude with a definition. Let's have a look at this. This is an Amnesty International campaign from 2007. It relies on optical illusion. It's an advertising strategy that twists photojournalism uh, by using the artistic technique of the trombleur, the um, trick of the eye. It's a, a baroque uh, artistic technique. Now, devoid of background, 
uh, pictures of torture, famine, and near death appear strangely disembodied next to us, as if they suddenly emerged from a remote reality to interrupt our safe life world. The text says it's not happening here but now, and it emphasizes uh, this compression, if you like, of space-time, which confronts us with human suffering, which is distant, uh, in its most realistic form, but in its most unreal context, our own street, our bus stops. And let me now move to the second one, which is a very recent Oxfam campaign. Actually, it is from, two, yeah, it's from April 2008. Shall I just copy it and, uh, yeah, copy it. Thanks. So this is a graphic animation story. This is really um, a cartoon story, uh, which breaks with photorealism altogether. You can see what it is. It's the figure of a senior citizen who's walking down her neighborhood street and pays absolutely no attention to the uh, uh, television sets or the newspapers that are full of events of distant disasters. But as she walks down and she cumulatively you know, um, in the, uh, comes to, uh, comes to, to, to notice what is going on, She's becoming increasingly aware of, of the fact that things are not right. And she, the, 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 uh, the uh, clip ends in the square of that neighborhood where that lady joins forces with other citizens and um, a white beam comes out of her mouth, as well as of the other citizens' mouths, to kill the beast of injustice that looks like an octopus-like uh, monster. Um, and uh, as that explodes under the, the pressure of, of, of their energy, um, um, the uh, logo of Oxfam appears and says, be moved, uh, be humankind. So be moved, be involved, be humankind. So what is happening here? As I said, no photorealism, no spectacle of suffering. The context is the space of our own city streets, and the theme is indifference and denial. The story really describes the moment of, the, of awakening for that senior citizen. As she adds her forces in a kind of heroic move with those of others in order to help beat that monster of injustice. Now, if there is a rhetoric that hints to civil activism and global responsibility here, this is coded in that cartoonesque phantasmagoria of the killing of the beast that explodes in some kind of fireworks at the end. Just before the motto of be humankind appears. Two features of these types of, of campaigns that I want to emphasize on for in one minute. 
The first one is the technologization of action. If we want to be moved and be involved, all we need to do is visit the website and click under the petitions or make donations links. Of course, this type of technologization of action significantly simplifies our engagement with these causes. And this should be a good thing. In fact, it does address what Boltanski earlier called the inability to be engaged for a length of time, for any length of time, with particular emotions. And it, you, we might say that it also addresses the question of fatigue. All these moral demands to act on, 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 on so much suffering that is irrelevant to us. At the same time, however, this technologization of action brings with it an expectation of effortless immediacy, a light-touch activism that is increasingly populating uh, the moral imagination of humanitarianism. And it brings us in contact with a brand, with Oxfam and with Amnesty, rather than mediating our relationship to action with the suffering others. The second and final uh, feature of these appeals I want to uh, focus on is the de-emotionalization of the cause. I am not claiming that these appeals are altogether devoid of emotion. This is impossible because every kind of humanitarian appeal has to somehow evoke some form of feeling, a public register of emotion. And there is no doubt that shock and outrage is there in the pictures of Amnesty International, and there is the heroic moment of the citizens beating the beast in the Oxford Mad. But what these appeals do, and this is a crucial point, is that they use optical illusion and they use graphic animation to show us that the production of emotion is precisely an act of meaning making. It is a textual game. In so doing, such picturings of the world turn emotion into an object, something that we can, we can reflect on and perhaps manage for a moment, rather than as something that is felt uh, as a consequence of our full engagement with the photorealist imagery, imagery of suffering. To conclude, it is this emerging form of humanitarian communication characterized by textual games, low-intensity emotional regimes, and the technologically mediated activism of instant gratification that we may call post-humanitarian uh, uh, communication. The prefix post in post-humanitarian refers to the loosening up of this necessary link between witnessing suffering and acting on the cause of suffering that informed previous styles of campaigning. I've got a normative part uh, in this conclusion, uh, concluding section of my presentation, but I just want to end here uh, with a question. Is this how we wish to picture our world in the future? So I'll now pass over to Max Horton, who will give her presentation. Thank you.
sometimes with suffering, but I look at images every day in my role as editor of Eight Magazine um, and uh, teaching students, obviously, at Westminster University. Um, I was only asked to uh, step into this talk yesterday, uh, and so it may appear that some of my choices don't necessarily fit in with the, uh, the view uh, that everybody else is going with this evening, so if that's the case, I apologize. However, um, what I decided to do was put together some work um, in the area of poverty, not necessarily the extremes of poverty in which uh, hundreds or thousands or millions of people die, but the, the more subtle, um, low-key kind of poverty that affects maybe some individuals some of the time. Um, I wanted to begin by saying that I'm not sure that the proliferation of images that uh, surrounds us all and maybe sometimes threatens to subsume us means that images themselves have become devalued. I mean, no, no one ever says that about words. Um, you know, look at those words everywhere, uh, fatiguing our compassion. Um, I think uh, images, though, there's no doubt that photographs do have uh, what we might call an image problem um, wrapped in those heavy, heavy robes of representation. Um, I definitely don't subscribe to the view that we've reached any kind of end of images, um, even though the death knell is, is frequently wrong. Um, I've been engaging or trying to engage with the work of Jacques Rancière uh, in talking about the future of images recently. Um, I'm not going to attempt to conduct an eight-minute lecture on him, though I would recommend uh, having a look at his book, The Future of Images, um, in which he neatly describes the birth of photography um, in a particular regime of articulation between the visible and the sayable. I mean, that's in using Foucauldian terms that no doubt many of you um, are aware of, uh, which has allowed it to develop as um, a production of resemblance and art. So we're already in a, a dialectic, the capacity of the image to act as both a cipher of history written in visible forms uh, and as an obtuse reality. So I think it's in that tension that a lot of the interest lies. Um, and Moncier reminds us that um, this wasn't invented by the camera obscura, uh, but you know, it had already happened with the novel um, redistrib redistributing those relations between um, the, seeable, uh, and, sorry, the visible and the sayable. Um, in the new aesthetic regime, uh, Rancière categorizes images exhibited in museums and galleries um, as the naked image, the ascensive image, and the metaphorical image. And it's the naked image, the one uh, that's intent solely on witnessing, that's perhaps the type that's most contested, um, that's got maybe you know, the worst reputation, if you like. And it's partly because this is the type of image that's disseminated most widely, obviously, in newspapers, magazines, via social networking sites. Um, and in particular in the shape of the, the single image. Um, and it's this type of documentary image that's often shoved under the umbrella of photojournalism. This is a term, again, that I have to grapple with a lot. Um, it's the name of the course uh, that I run at Westminster. Um, I inherited that, but for various reasons, I've gone backwards and forwards, but um, I'm happy with that. And we did drop the word from our masthead of Eight magazine about three years ago. Um, and I remember at the time that was after a, uh, an editorial meeting in which, you know, we look at images for submission, um, and for the second meeting in a row, we had this series of image, and on the CD, it had a title, and it was called um, The Mentally Ill of the Great Lakes Region. And just by that title alone, I just almost, almost gave up, um, you know, wanting to look, why had somebody had to go to, you know, a gigantic area spanning some five countries to try and find you know, the most miserable situation on the earth. But to what end was it? You know, did it arouse my pity? Well, certainly, but it made me feel you know more more powerless than 
than ever. It didn't tell me anything about the people. It didn't tell me anything about the place. It didn't tell me anything about mental health. Um, it just had that, you know, that black and white aesthetic, the aesthetic, you could call it the aesthetic of, of pity. And that's what photojournalism is often perceived to be. I mean, I contest that that isn't what photojournalism is. For me, um, it's simply a use to which photographs are put. And when photographs are used with words, that's photojournalism. So um, I guess one of the reasons that I was keen to take up the invitation to come and talk is to try and um, to, to get away from... Um, from, from those those thoughts really, but only if that's that's a, a useful route to go down, I guess. Um, and I think the the thing about those images, um, and we know, you know, there's a shorthand for them. There's the, the starving child. I mean, these images are still perpetuated. They may have been used on Oxfam, well, they were used obviously on Oxfam campaigns from the uh, 70s and 80s, but they they still appear all the time in our newspapers. Um, shorthand for suffering. You know, uh, crying baby, um, starving, starving person—not as often, um, but but they are um, still there. And I think that they speak too much. Um, they carry no secrets at all. And so, if everything's revealed in an image, then there's nothing left to say. Um, anyway, to move on to um, some of the images I wanted to show you um, this evening, my particular area of interest is in uh, how images, photographs and words work together. I'm actually not a photographer, never have been. Um, I've uh, built my career, I guess, as a, a writer. I, I'm not trying to suggest, I should say, that the visible and the sayable are exactly synonymous, uh, to refer to my earlier point, earlier point, with photographs and writing, but um, I am interested in this area. I think there's a, a rich vein to be tapped, um, and I'll show you some contemporary work that interests me towards the end of this um, short presentation um, who are working closely with the written word. Um, but I think it's best illustrated by a couple of ingenious examples from history. Um, there's this book that, I don't know if anyone knows it, I only happened upon it um, last week. Uh, so it's called The Sweet by Paper of Life, as you can see. Um, the photographs are by uh, Roy P. Carava and the, the words are by Langston Hughes. Uh, they were working in Harlem uh, in the 1940s. Um, this book was published originally in 1955, and I've just got a few spreads from it to show you. Um, it's the way the images and work, words work together, um, and obviously, really, you need to go and get the book, uh, but I'll do my best to, to present it, and I just wish that I had uh, a kind of Harlem accent to go with it, so excuse, excuse mine. Um, it depicts life in Harlem just as the integration laws um, were coming, coming through. I'm not claiming it's a study of poverty, and actually that's one of the things I like about it. Um, it doesn't actually claim to be anything at all. I think that's half its beauty. Um, it, but it reveals a very real sense of, of a hardship as it unfolds. And it's in the exchange between the words and photographs that this knowledge, human knowledge, if you like, is transmitted. Um, Apparently, the early editions of the book began with writing actually on the front cover of the book, which I think is intriguing in itself. Um, if it works. Great. Um, the text uh, that you can't probably read from there uh, says uh, that there's a narrator. It's the persona of an older woman, as you'll, you'll find out. Because in Harlem, lots of rumors have got cars bigger than the room they live in but ain't nobody in our family got a car. I wonder how come. We learn that the narrator is clinging on to life, and she appears to be writing from her sickbed, um, defying death 
um, in order to look after her tenth grandchild. And added to this, um, she's also worried about her older grandson, Rodney. That's just to put a bit of context into the story for you. And she contrasts um, Rodney's life um, with that of his brother, Chick, who has a girlfriend. And here's Chick's girl. Um, she lives on a, a pretty street. Um, well, where she lives, they got an elevator. Pretty street's clean. It's on a hill. And I think when you imagine these pictures with, without the words, um, Anyway, you perhaps see what I'm, I'm trying to, to show you, that the, sort of the, the special thing that the words do. Anyway, the trouble with Rodney, apparently, is that he had a baby when he was 16. I mean, he hasn't acknowledged the child. Uh, and that's uh, someone who is perceived to be Sugar Lee. He had a baby by Sugar Lee before he were even 17, and he did not pay that baby no mind, did not even walk it like other fathers do. Um, Rodney's child growed up like that boy down the street, sad. He don't never smile. And then on the, the opposite spread. I think it's so nice like seeing a child talking to its father. Um, and then we hear about the nature of work for the narrator um, after her grandson was sent to live with her. Uh, she says, and, and I done climbed up and down a million subway steps and I done rid a million subway cars and went back and forth to work a million days for that Rodney because he's my favourite grandboy. Why? I don't know why. Now, you take the subway. It's lonesome at night. But at the rush hour, well, all it took was the Supreme Court to decide on mixed schools. But the rush hour in the subway mixes everybody. White, black, Gentile, Jew. Closer than you are to your relatives. <clears throat> now me, I always done a day's work ever since I come to New York with no extra pay for riding in the subway, which is the hardest work of all. Sometimes when a woman comes home in the twilight evening, she's so tired she has to set down at the top of the steps to wait for the crosstown bus. The narrator describes how women sometimes carry their work clothes in a bag and go to work all dressed up, but maybe they're too tired to make the trip home um, in their best clothes, so they stay in their work clothes going home. But me, she says, I always try to change my clothes before I come home so my grandchildren would see me looking fresh. She describes how nice it is... Uh, see young folk dressed up um, but she says it's sad if you ain't invited it's too bad there's no front porches in Harlem almost nothing except, except stoops to sit on um, and I love the way in this work um, it's, it's meant to be this dark and I really like the fact and, and this is probably politically incorrect to say so but I really like the fact that the, the black faces are in the black shadows and there wasn't a picture editor going oh but you can't see the faces I mean that, that's what it looks like and I think I just think that that worked um, because it's true and I also think that it shows the way um, that the people any people are dwarfed by a city and how they live in the shadows of their own city um, oh that's that's the last image sorry um, it's hard to remember that this isn't being written on by a Harlem <coughs> grandmother, um, I think, and that the author is actually Langston Hughes, the so-called chronicler of Negro life in America. Um, and it's this use of fiction, uh, which is what it turns out to be, and documentary photographs that captivates me, um, that in the right hands, uh, I think, achieves more than some of its parts. Um, and when we arrive at the book's final image, um, I think this is where the, the marriage of word and image is even more evident. And if you try 
to think of the photographs, as I said earlier, tender though they are without the words, this would be a portrait of an elderly woman in her Sunday best. Um, and here I think it's become invested with something else entirely. Um, I don't know if you can see, the, this is the last, the absolute end of the book. Um, it becomes a statement of identity, uh, the words becoming almost a, a speech act of the kind described by J.J. Austen. It says, here I am. Um, and I think that because the words end in such a positive space, um, it's the opposite of what words are often uh, purported to do. They're normally you know, in tandem with the death drive. Uh, and we did have the narrator close to death, and now um, she is brought to life by this vivid image. But more importantly, at least for our discussion, um, by the, I think it's the discursive presentation of word and image together uh, that, that make this so successful. Um, I wanted to move on to another classic of uh, word and image. Um, you may know both, and um, the photographs I'm about to show you are uh, by Walker Evans. Um, excuse me while I just find the beginning of my seat. There we go. Uh, and they were, he was taking pictures anyway for the <coughs> FSA, the Farm Security Administration, um, depicting poverty in the rural south. Um, I'm sorry. Really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Better than I thought. Um, okay, I'll, I'll just go through the images, and that will allow me to end with um, a great quote by James Agee. So what happened is he got commissioned uh, by Fortune magazine with this writer called James Agee um, to, uh, to do, do a piece on, if you like, in contemporary jargon, uh, on the rural poor. Um, and the words that James Agee wrote to go with this are just the most extraordinary words I've ever seen um, that accompany photographs. Um, he's constantly grappling with his role uh, as a writer. He's absolutely obsessed with the ethics um, of what he's doing. He says, it seems to me curious, uh, not to say obscene and thoroughly terrifying, that it could occur to an association of human beings drawn together through need and chance and for profit into a company an organ of journalism, to pry intimately into the lives of an undefended and appallingly damaged group of human beings, an ignorant and helpless rural family, for the purpose of parading the nakedness, disadvantage and humiliation of these lives before another group of human beings in the name of science, of honest journalism, whatever that paradox may mean, of humanity, of social fearlessness, for money and for a reputation for crusading and for unbiased, which when skillfully enough qualified, is exchangeable at any bank for money and in politics for votes, job patronage, Abe Lincolnism, etc., and that these people could be capable of mediating this prospect without the slightest doubt of their qualification to do an honest piece of work and with a conscience better than clear in the virtual certitude of almost unanimous public approval. That was one sentence of his, by the way. Um, and because I'm about to finish, um, all of this, I repeat, seems to me curious, obscene, terrifying, and unfathomably, unfathomably mysterious. Um, he's agonizing in his self-questioning, and I think that this is one of the things that draws the reader back to both the words um, and uh, Walker Evans' undoubtedly uh, poignant photographs again and again. Um, I've clearly misjudged my time wildly, but that's fine. Um, I did have some contemporary images to show you. Um, I could do a short advert and say they're in the new issue of Eight magazine anyway. Um, some of the work is by Paul's uh, former student from LCC, Adam Patterson, um, which I'd love you to look at. It's documenting life 
um, in Brixton right now, um, which certainly involves an element of poverty, and it's a very collaborative project whereby he got one of the guys um, who introduced him to everybody, who allowed him to take the pictures to write on the photographs, a la Jim Goldberg, um, and the rest of the interesting contemporary work you can see in the exhibition that accompanies this talk. So I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Yeah, so Renzo's going to talk a few minutes first and then he's going to show the excerpt from the film. Thank you. two or three minutes we're going to see an excerpt of a film I made, a study, a 12-minute study of a long feature film that uh, I made in the Congo over the last years. Um, and it pretty much deals with the issue of tonight, which is aid fatigue. Um, I have the impression that we are only fatigued with aid and with all these images of suffering because they hardly ever tell us what the matter is. We keep on, these images keep on telling us these people are star starving, help them, or they're starving. And w In one way or the other, we are meant to go and help these people. While in fact, of course, these people help us a lot more than we help them. None of these eight pictures show us that even if we give $100 to UNICEF or whatever other organization, the money coming back to us is far more. Not just in financial terms, because, but also because much of, let's say, the poorer countries in the world are working for us for free. They work for $5 a month, $10 a month, $30 a month. So every time we drink a cup of coffee, we are being subsidized So by people working for us for free. So I think the issue with aid fatigue is just that we are so terribly um, uh, concerned with what we are, how we are helping other people, whereas you know, we are helped, in fact, being fed by the world, pretty much. And if we are fatigued with other people's suffering, it's because nobody explains us what our, what our role in it is. So, um, of course, there's reasons why these type of images and this type of discourse makes it to the media all the time, and I, I don't have the time now to get into it. But I did set out in the Congo, and, and this is, I will show you something of that now, to, to do some kind of entrepreneurial philanthropism, as, as Bono apparently called it. So I, I figured out that, in fact, images of poverty are, are Congo's and probably Africa's biggest export product. And that just as with many other export products from Africa, it is not the suppliers of the raw material, being the poor that allow themselves to be photographed, that benefit from it at all. So I then launched this type of emancipation program to help the poor embrace their biggest capital, which is their poverty. You can't give them anything. 
that they don't already have. You shouldn't give them anything they don't already have. What you should do is train them, empower them. You know, there's new opportunities. The world is, has changed, and there's new, uh, new markets, new products. Unfortunately, people are very unaware of them, of that. I mean, you know, people in the forest have no clue. Posso richiamare dopo? Ciao. Sì, ciao. Sì, sì, ciao.
Mais si les gens ils veulent avoir une photo, ils viennent ici chez vous. Oui. Ici, euh, ça c'est le poste, c'est là où on dépose des pellicules pour qu'on envoie ça à Boutembo. Mais ici il y a aussi un photographe qui fait des photos oui. Vous deux Oui, oui, oui. Nous, nous sommes ici. Mmh. Moi je fais des photos à même. Ah, c'est ça le travail que vous faites oui. vraiment Oui. D'autres c'était pour les adversaires, d'autres pour des d'autres pour des cérémonies, des mariages, mmh. c'est ce qu'on faisait ici. Ça coûte combien pour faire les photos Ah, donc de, de mes d'œuvres. Mmh. Bon, donner, donner un... Tout inclus, même avec les photos, avec... Euh... Bon, les photos, c'est 0 pour 75. C'est 0 pour 75. Par photo Oui. Dollars. Oui. Mmh. Ce que je me demande, normalement, vous, vous photographiez les gens, comme ça, là-bas, quand ils sont bien, non mmh. Quand ils ont l'anniversaire... Oui, là... oui. Quand ils ont une fête, quoi. Oui. Et les photographes qui viennent de, de l'Europe ou des États-Unis, ils viennent pour filmer pas la fête et les cérémonies, ils viennent pour filmer un peu la misère. Pourquoi oui. Quel est leur intérêt là-dedans <rire> Bon, je ne sais pas, ça, ça c'est laissé pour les Américains quand même. Pour Ce sont eux qui connaissent leur intérêt, moi je ne sais pas l'intérêt. Mais qu'est-ce que vous pensez Qu'est-ce que vous pensez <rire> Vous n'avez pas d'opinion là-dessus On doit faire un choix sur la base rationnelle. Donc, pas par la tradition, par exemple, « Ah oui, nous on fait la pêche parce que mon ancêtre ont déjà fait la pêche. » On doit calculer, est-ce que la pêche ça rapporte plus Ou bien est-ce que c'est l'agriculture qui rapporte plus Ou bien est-ce qu'il y a encore autre chose qui va plus rapporter et j'ai pensé que vous avez des options que, à présent, vous n'utilisez pas. Vous faites des bonnes choses, mais il y a encore des autres choses que vous pouvez faire, et vous ne le faites pas. Donc il y a deux options. La fête, et ici on fait les... la guerre. La guerre, mais il faut bien spécialiser la guerre. En fait, c'est les femmes violées et les cadavres. Deux pellicules, hein, c'est ça. Ça coûte 3 dollars. Deux fois développé, ça coûte 6 dollars. Non, deux fois, ça c'est 12. 16, 17, point 9, oui, 19,4. Donc 34 fois 0,6, c'est 24. C'est 24. Il y a encore des autres bénéfices financiers. On voit donc que vous gagnez un dollar par mois en faisant photographe de fête. Option, filmer la guerre, ben, photo par mois. Fois 50 dollars. Ça fait 1000 dollars. Si vous voyez bien la différence, option, filmer et photographier les fêtes, un dollar de bénéfice par mois après qu'on a déduit les, les, les frais, pour l'option euh, femme violée, cadavre, et on ajoute enfant mal nourri, on voit 1000 dollars par mois. Vous voyez que, y a une, ben, qu y a, que les deux options ne sont pas pareilles. Donc ça serait bien, je ne sais pas, 
un peu irrationnel de, de ne pas filmer la faute la pauvreté. C'est ça. Si vous avez de cette situation ici à Cagna, si vous avez deux bonnes photos ou bien trois, c'est OK. Il ne faut pas avoir 30 000 photos. Si vous avez deux ou trois qui sont forts, c'est pour ça que c'est important de choisir les cas qui, qui, qui sont les plus graves. Comme ça, vous pouvez montrer directement. Et ici, on voit aussi les comment les côtes. Donc ça, si les gens voient ça, ils comprennent directement que c'est très très grave. Oui. Donc ça c'est des photos que vous pouvez Donc il faut bien choisir ces sujets. Faites une photo de ça, ça c'est très bon. Mais l'enfant qui a beaucoup soif.
talk about um, uh, images of war as an example of the uh, issues that we've been uh, talking over this evening, um, and particularly about um, the Iraq War, although I'll show, start showing you some images of um, Vietnam. The Iraq War was the most uh, intensively reported in history, involving more than double the journalists present at the height of media interest in Vietnam. Yet it's curious that at least so far, out of the resulting cascade of images that minute by minute fill television screens, websites, and the pages of newspapers and magazines, few seem to stick in the mind and to become the key images that define the character of the war. And a number of photographs had done that um, for the Vietnam War. Uh, Malcolm Brown's image of a uh, Buddhist priest burning himself to death at the, uh, protest, in protest at the actions of his government in South Vietnam. Uh, Eddie Adams' famous 1968 picture of the summary execution of a guerrilla suspect. Uh, Nikut's 1971 photograph of a napalm-burned girl running down a road. And Ron Heibel's uh, uh, photographs of the massacre at My Lai. Uh, and also we can you know, add many other uh, uh, images into this, uh, much of the work of Philip Jones Griffiths, for instance. So I wonder why that might be, why it is that um, there are fewer images, certainly photojournalistic images anyway, that <coughs> stick in our mind of Iraq. One might be uh, a sheer overproduction of images, uh, an overavailability almost of them, and of the sites on which images, such images are seen. Um, a, a way in which also images are um, uh, almost immediately a pastiched and parodied and placed into, into different uh, contexts. Um, well, this is an example indeed from uh, 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 Vietnam with uh, um, Nick Ut. Uh, he's very interesting to look at the ways in which his images also are, are kind of repurposed on various websites. He's become a photojournalist who works uh, in the US now, and uh, aside from this uh, infamous image of his um, <laughs> of Kim Foot, yeah, he also um, has taken a successful image of uh, Paris Hilton being driven off to jail. Um, but we also get things like this, um, which seem to be takes on the Abu Ghraib images, uh, you know, really quite quickly um, uh, appearing, uh, in this case, in Vogue, Italia. Um, then there were our, uh, the pressures on photographers, too, to produce images very quickly uh, and to immediately upload them. The very practice of photojournalism is quite different than it was uh, in, in the 60s and 70s, uh, where certain photographers at least could lose themselves and did strategically uh, lose themselves for a couple of weeks at a time uh, and uh, you know, intensively photograph and reflect on what they were photographing. Now, um, photographers are expected to be in pretty immediate uh, uh, contact with their, with their news desks. Um, and even the, uh, the act of photographing, uh, the fact that you can get a review of the picture immediately on your camera, so it's, it's click, and if you think you've got something good, it's let's check, okay, immediately like this. And then, well, if it's good, then you need to upload it fast, right? So the whole the rhythm, I suppose, and the practice of photojournalism has also changed. Um, there are also issues, I think, about the um, shift from black and white, largely, uh, as a medium for photojournalism, um, to color. Um, I was talking to Don McCullen about this image of his. Um, 
and uh, he was telling the story of this image and how this marine was caught by a grenade. Uh, and he says that this uh, patch here, which I never really noticed or paid much attention to uh, in the image, is the marine's guts. Uh, now, if this image was in color, uh, that is the first thing that you would see. And for a long time, perhaps, it would be the only thing you would see. So the shift from black and white to color also introduces profound changes. And one can see this in uh, uh, the, uh, the, the kind of bright uh, uh, digital uh, colors uh, and images of, uh, of many photojournalists are working in, in Iraq. Um, Benjamin talked about these sepulchral tones of early photography and how um, they seemed uh, mysterious because of what they withheld from the viewer. Uh, and one way of looking at photography, and indeed even comparing early photography, uh, early color photography to, to color, current color photography, uh, is uh, an evaporation of that withholding. Uh, another image, uh, these from here at Van Kesteren uh, from Iraq. Now, the major military innovation of the Iraq war regarding the media uh, was the embedding of journalists. And under this system, um, reporters, TV crews, and photographers gained relatively unrestricted access to the war at the price of being tied to a particular troop unit. The system was devised to grant journalists largely uncensored access to military uh, operations while strongly encouraging them to take a positive view of uh, military operations. And since many embedded journalists were placed in dangerous circumstances under the protection of the troops and lived with them uh, you know, uh, for extended periods, this tended to foster a strong identification with their new comrades. They were generally very grateful for the access to spectacular stories, admiring of their protectors, and appreciative of the troops' various travails. And many images of this you know, kind of spectacular sort were, of course, produced and, uh, and continue to be produced and, and published in the, in the papers. Yet embodied journalists were also aware of the, um, another example, uh, of the disadvantages of this privileged view of war, especially in being tied to particular units. Uh, so they often have little information about the wider circumstances of the war. Yet despite these uh, laments about the uh, 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 embedding's deficiencies, it continues to dominate. And it fitted the demands of the news organizations in the US and the UK uh, for spectacular, live or at least up to the minute reports, high on affect and often low on analysis, uh, and, and also likely to stiffen patriotic uh, sentiment. This is a more uh, a kind of genre image produced by an embedded photojournalist uh, of a perhaps less uh, sanguine type. The embeds were largely uncensored uh, initially although understandably they weren't allowed to report troop locations and other sensitive information that might have been of uh, use to Iraqi armed forces. And they weren't allowed to show US casualties until their families had been informed. But as the system developed, it turned out that soldiers at various levels evolved their own sets of rules, which in concert with the sensibilities of the mass media produced a highly controlled and I'd argue sanitized view of the war. As the occupation continued, photography became increasingly constrained, partly because Iraq became extremely dangerous for anyone thought to have links to the occupation, or even to anyone having money or professional status, and partly because of an evolving system of censorship. Uh, photojournalist Michael Camber described the situation. So I'm quoting now. Today in Iraq, there are so many things we can't photograph anymore. 
Car bombings and suicide bombings are now off limits. It's actually illegal to photograph those scenes. We can't photograph wounded soldiers without their consent. Uh, we can't photograph dead soldiers, coffins of dead soldiers. We can't photograph battle-damaged vehicles. We can't photograph hospitals. Morgues are off limits now. So pretty much everything that gives evidence that there's a war going on is almost impossible to photograph. And there is, in any case, little desire among the US and the UK public to see such things, little motive for the media to show them. Indeed, there's a strong disincentive since they're poisoned to, to advertisers. And so the photographic view of the war becomes increasingly bloodless and anodyne. Um, under Iraq, embedding has now been you know, taken under the control of the Iraqi administration, and things have become even more restricted uh, under that. It's extremely difficult to get access to sort of um, uh, ethnically cleansed enclaves into which uh, Iraq has been divided. Um, and when you do, you're um, accompanied by a large number of Iraqi troops. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's sort of difficult to, uh, again, make serious photojournalism under those circumstances. In addition to embedding and censorship, the military mastered the photo op and staged many actions for the cameras. Most famously, the war opened with a shock and awe assault on the Iraqi, on Iraqi infrastructure, a bloody firework display intended to terrify the Iraqi army into surrender and to broadcast the extent of US military prowess to the world. Reporters, photographers, and TV crews in the Palestine Hotel had a ringside view of, this, of the bombardment taking place across the river. This is an example from a photographer called Franco Fagetti. And in this and in similar staged photo ops, the media were co-opted as an essential part of uh, military strategy, what the Pentagon calls um, a force multiplier, a term also used to describe the presence of uh, women and dogs uh, and at, at, um, at the Abu Ghraib jail, uh, respectively, to humiliate and terrify prisoners. Uh, so cameras here take on the role of um, weapons or aids to military force. And talking of Abu Ghraib, there was a wider failure, I think, of the press to take on the Bush regime, either here or in the US. Um, this was partly because there was a lack of credible or sustained opposition in Washington, particularly from the Democratic Party. And so although there were you know, certain honorable journalists uh, who, who worked away at the story and indeed produced books about it, in the press, the story fizzled after a couple of weeks. And the administration's chosen description of the events as abuse, not torture, and the result of a few um, bad apples, rather than being an implementation of, um, of directives urging an abandonment of the Geneva Conventions approved at the highest levels of the government, those, those descriptions were allowed generally to pass unchallenged. The mainstream press, which seems incapable of setting its own agendas aside from the manufactured news events of the political elite, was incapable of running the story beyond the first spectacular appearance of the photographs. And it's still, um, despite all the other media available, the mainstream news media that have by far the greatest effect on public opinion, to the extent that a good many Americans still believe that Iraq had some hand in, in uh, the events of 9-11. Well, the profession of photojournalism has been, one might argue, in, in, in long decline since the fall of the illustrated magazines that made the best photographers stars and lavished resources upon them. This was at a time uh, in the 30s and 40s and, 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 and through, through into, the, into the 60s indeed, when um, these were the major um, news outlets, the places where you know, millions of readers would weekly 
um, uh, get their news. And, and, and uh, uh, they were, I suppose, the, um, the technological height at the time of, uh, of, the, of the media uh, industry. Um, and the decline dates back to the 60s and was caused by the rise of TV news. But it has been exacerbated by other newer features, including the extraordinarily wide ownership of digital cameras, particularly phone cameras, and the ease of sending photographs, which has produced the rise of um, usually unpaid citizen journalists. Um, economically pressed news organizations often prefer to provide cameras but little training to willing locals rather than fly professionals out to some scene of conflict. Uh, rates paid for the publication of newspaper photographs have fallen over time quite steeply. Another image, I suppose, Renzo has been showing you some of the, uh, uh, the industry of photojournalism um, uh, okay. uh, in train. Uh, this uh, a picture by David Silverman, taken in Ramallah, 2000. Nick Davis, in his book Flat Earth News, argues that news industries, and particularly the newspapers, have been um, uh, remade as purely commercial concerns. While the old press barons ran them for their influence over public opinion and state policy, and thus took the quality of news seriously, um, uh, profit is now the prime motive. So stories are covered with you know, great rapidity, uh, and most proceed unchecked publication. Uh, and papers tend to produce, with little modification, the material handed down from the press agencies, which are su subject to similar uh, pressures, and especially the PR industry, which includes, of course, um, uh, the military. Um, as a result, it's received opinion that's the quickest and easiest to convey, and cliche reigns. Uh, and I think this affects photojournalism, the captions and the stories that surround it, uh, and photographs take their place in the press, which has become degraded in public opinion, and is often rightly thought of as unreliable, gullible, mendacious, and venal. And as we've seen, many photographers themselves uh, are not you know, immune to, to such pressures. So in this way, the operation of an unrestrained form of capitalism works against the interests of democracy. With our current wars, it allows, without sufficient public examination or debate, the exercise of brutal and totalitarian methods against those who are unfortunate enough to live in areas of strategic importance under inconvenient dictators. Uh, the US, of course, is well known, um, has engaged in kidnapping, murder, torture uh, of those that has chosen it as its opponents. Uh, gulags, some secret, and some like Guantanamo Bay, publicized, are set up across the, uh, across the globe. Children are seized and held to extort information from their parents. Uh, these are sort of tactics worthy of and familiar from um, you know, the Nazis, really. I mean, this is a, would be a comparable or, or, or uh, the worst aspects of the Soviet regime. Yet they pass without uh, 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 adequate comment from the democratic press, at least in the nations of the combatants and with little published photographic representation. Um, okay, I'm gonna skip on here a bit. I was gonna say a bit more about um, photojournalism and various other kind of congruent image practices, but uh, I'll move on. So given the circumstances laid out here, it's unsurprising that widespread suspicion surrounds photojournalism. 
news management by the state and the military have made people rightly skeptical of the manufactured images that they see in newspapers and on TV, in this case, uh, the, of the uh, no notorious uh, mirror fakes of uh, Iraqi atrocities, uh, absolutely manufactured images. The ease and speed with which um, photography can be altered uh, and awareness of the extent to which meaning can be manipulated by selective framing produces deep distrust. <laughs> in blogs, the meaning of photographs are debated passionately and often furiously, the political partisans of all sides finding reasons to dismiss any photographic evidence which challenges their views. The most fundamental factor, I think, uh, this is a double-page spread from Philip Jones Griffith's uh, famous book, Vietnam, Inc., uh, and as you can see, he's using photographs here to a juxtaposition of photographs to make a very uh, 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 explicit political point. The most fundamental factor that separates our world from that of the Vietnam era is the lack of an opposition with a cogent worldview that could assemble the evidence, words, pictures, and video into a condemnation of the war that could not be ignored, that would gnaw at us and torture us as it did many in the late 1960s and early 1970s. The sheer, yeah, 30 seconds. The sheer intense intensity of commercial uh, competition to war imagery, from celebrity culture to YouTube to the fictional renderings of the war on terror, such as 24, the speed of gossip and self-fashioning through trivia, all this make it too easy to forget that bloody subterranean rumor, uh, murmur that should stain our whole existence. For if through the actions of our troops and allies abroad, we have come to act as torturers, and if that cannot be readily grasped through pictures, and if that does not cause a questioning of our politics, then something fundamental about our democracy is broken. Thank you. Um, are we going to be able to go on a bit beyond 8 o'clock, or have we got to absolutely be out at 8? Or? Yeah? Great. I hope so, otherwise we're going to have a very short time. Um, I just wanted to pick up on one thing as chair, try and draw together a couple of the themes there. Maybe these might get picked up by the audience, and I'm not necessarily asking the, the, the panel to answer these questions at the moment, but the two things that seem to become very clear to me from that debate. Well, one, the question of whether empowering the, what are currently the strangers, in other words, the others, the people that we represent as professional media organizations, empowering them with the ability to represent themselves seems to be potentially one very important thing to think about. And obviously, Renzo tried that with his experiment. But equally, if you look at what's happened in Iraq and, and Palestine, for, in, for instance, and Afghanistan, the real, the real story has been the emergence of local photographers, Palestinians, Iraqi photographers, photographing their own stories. And that's been a, a very major shift in the sense that you see far more voices, as it were, you see far more names in a lot of published work these days taken by photographers from the places that are actually living there rather than it being a Western viewpoint. So one question is whether an increased empowerment of that kind of activity would be beneficial. And the other one is, is this idea of how do you represent the unrepresentable? I think both in Lily's presentation at the end there, when she was talking about this sort of the kind of attempts of people at Oxfam to show a different perspective on, on, on these issues, but also with the last pictures that Julian showed, those fake mirror pictures. You know, it's pretty widely accepted that what was happening, the, the things that those images represented were true. In other words, those kind of abuses were happening. Undoubtedly, the photographs were a, 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 a semi-fictionized representation of those. And we've got this coming up, literally, it's probably going to blow in the next week or two the images from Abu Ghraib that we never got to see at the time, where the Obama administration is currently debating whether it should release those pictures. And there is one set of images that some of you may be familiar with of the rape of an Iraq, so the purported rape of an Iraqi civilian woman by either 
US uh, soldiers themselves or coalition forces. Those images exist, and there's been quite a debate about whether they were faked, inverted commas, or set up, or whether they're pornography, or whether they were real pictures of a real abuse. The question there, I suppose I'm leaving is, what is the difference between a recreated image of an actual abuse and the abuse itself and a, a real photograph of that abuse? In other words, if we're able to kind of pretend that because it was a recreation of an event, it didn't happen, does that actually mean that it didn't happen or not? So I'm not really asking you to answer those questions now. I'm just going to throw those up for a bit of a break. But I think it would be great to get some questions from the floor if anybody wants to, to just put your hand up in order. And please try and say just very briefly who you are and where you're from so we can try and uh, get a sense of where you're coming from. There's a question at the back there. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Um, my name's Aya. I'm on an MSc in NGOs and Development at LSE. Um, I actually have two comments to make about the film that was that was screened. Um, the first one is that um, you talked at the beginning about how we've benefited, well, the West has benefited off the backs of the poor South and all this. But I find that, and I appreciate that I, we only saw really small excerpts of the film, the, the longer film that you made, so this is, I haven't seen the whole thing. But um, I just felt that a lot of it was a was about, I mean, it's one thing for us to exploit them, but I thought that what you were promoting in this film was them exploiting their own people. That, you know, in order for, that when you were giving them that talk in front of the whiteboard, that you were, you were promoting, I guess, personal monetary gain off these photographs, um, rather than actually changing the, right. the social situations and that none of the right questions were being asked, that in order for these photographers to make a sustainable living, they're going to need to feed off the destitution and the, and the severe poverty or, or um, you know, misery of the poor that, that are suffering, well, the suffering people. So I don't really see what, I mean, what exactly you're doing that's different to what we did to them. I don't Shall I respond to that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I, I don't I just explained them how, how a, a market economy works. It's not about good or bad, it's a market economy. And you will be interested to know that um, indeed, uh, later on we tried to sell their pictures, so we went to visit uh, all the NGO agencies, and nobody wanted to buy their pictures because they said if they would be profiting of the misery of their neighbors, then that was immoral. But if I do it, I fly in from here, you know, a $1,000 ticket, and. Uh, you know, I, I even make a career out of these things, and many other people do, then that is not immoral. So they were, they agreed with you, these uh, NGO people. Um, but I don't agree with it. <laughs> I don't agree with it. I, I think if one, if the film does one thing, it, it somehow reveals these power relationships between me somehow imposing some development model that uh, we may as well call capitalism onto them, and, and they, you know, accepting it for a little while, later on, Within the long film, they told me that this is not what they want to do, um, and they're very right. But I'm not there to change the world. I'm just there. That's not my position. I don't have that power. I'm just there to, you know, through some, I think, rather ingenious little strategies, reveal it. That's what I try to do. I think we can.
are facing here in the moment is exactly what uh, these uh, folks who you taught on the uh, board uh, were facing when they looked at you. So what we here as an audience should uh, 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 let you see now is the black of exactly your thousand pound uh, journey, which you of course have at that stage of your film no time to include. I ask whether the final film will include now exactly that blackboard uh, situation in which all of us are asking you now what are you actually teaching these people? Uh, one thing which I uh, definitely noticed where there is a certain failure and shortcoming is that uh, afterwards you saw uh, folks going with the technology of the camera uh, to uh, those very, very uh, vulnerable people and uh, this is destroying totally what the anthropologists would call the ritual of the situation. That sure, means uh, sure. this poor little uh, kid, you know, looking at the finger of you coming uh, anyhow, so I don't need to go on. But the worst, I mean, definitely, which you have to weed out is your uh, performance when you wash your face. I mean, honestly, at that point, it's just really getting too, too Really, much. yeah. I think it's just a proper representation how, of how all these types of images are made and also how, how this broader, um, how, how agency works between us and these people there. But of course I don't criticize it, I reenact it, I do it too. So we can criticize it together. Now we see together this type of behavior in Africa is terrible. Uh, so that's good. Um, uh, now you see that aid is self-centered, egotistical, hypocritical, and it does not attack the right problem. That is entirely correct, you've seen that. And, and, and that is pretty much what's happening. I'm, I'm happy to tell you also that we, in, in Julian's picture, the last one in which we saw the photographers p photographing the uh, Palestinian uh, guy with the flag waving, the middle guy of that, the middle photographer was James Macri, yeah? Mm -hmm. He filmed in that very same hospital. His pictures were published in Time magazine. Their pictures were never bought, of course, but of my friends. But and, and he... He and every other white photographer coming in asks the people to ask the, the doctors whether they can undress the children for the picture. This is common fare. It's a pity you don't know this. You know, I'm sure in anthropology you have all kinds of rituals and, and you, you are paid academically to do these rituals, but in photojournalism or this type of compassion building enterprises, uh, the children are just undressed for the picture. That's it. There is no ritual. Well, that's a ritual in itself, I would say. But and, and my task is just to show that. <laughs> oh, whatever, some, I don't know, I'm not a, I'm, I've never studied really. Um, but I just happen to know these things. Um, so I, I agree with all your criticism. That's, you, you can have the criticism exactly because I give you these ele elements to be critical about. Does anyone from the panel want to come back on in this moment? Or? Just um, really, it's, it's a clarification question, I suppose, more. Um, when did you do this film? Was it this year or last year? Or um, it's, I, I was in Congo for about three years uh, making, this, making the footage for this film. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah. I mean, I suppose... Very recently, yeah? Yeah, sorry. Up to, up to 2007. So, yeah, well, what I wanted to say, and that's in continuation to, to, to the question here, is that all the issues that you're raising here, and obviously you're raising them in a very provocative way, and I, I 
just try said. to be realistic. Yeah, yeah, realistic. Of course, reality can be very provocative, particularly in a context like this. Um, what I wanted to say is part of the thing that I tried to suggest through the narrative of the problematizations of humanitarian communication is that this has been known for years and years. This is precisely the problem of how do you capture the unrepresentable? Where is that figure of the human that can possibly ever um, either well up particular emotions uh, to help or could just uh, paralyze us and allow us to just be spectators to that spectacle? And, and, and where are the kind of limits of morality to that? These are questions that humanitarian organizations have been struggling for for at least 25 years now. So I, I respect your project. But I think, you know, it doesn't quite, well, to me, to me in any way, it, really, it didn't really bring up any new issues that were well, not there you're, before. that's good, you're well informed, that's good. I applaud that. Uh, I'm speaking on behalf of, 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 a, whole, uh, of a whole industry, in fact, uh, well, in I the West, that has <laughs> been working on that and, and has been um, uh, trying to precisely find ways in which uh, the concept of humanity through questions of suffering and poverty can be communicated. Well, I, I would disagree, but I don't think we have the time here to, uh, to get into that. Um, sorry, the girl over had a hand up first, and then I'll come to you at the back. Hi. Um, I was actually continuing the point that you had made, actually. Um, you're talking about empowerment um, and, them, you know, picturing themselves. But I just, I've seen the film, uh, the whole film, and I, just, I was just a bit upset with how you just left those, those locals when you took them to the NGOs and then they got their hopes up. You can see them really excited. And, you know, maybe we can make some money and improve our situation. And then it was like, sorry, chaps, yeah, you know, it's not going to happen. And you just see them just walking down the street, completely shelved, really upset. W what happened to them? Um, the, the, the lady describes a scene in which these local photographers, so we go, you know, we try and sell their pictures everywhere, and then in the end, you know, we're being turned down we or them, um, and, uh, and then I just tell them, well, it's not going to work because apparently your pictures are not good enough and you don't have internet access, you don't have a press card, you'll never get one, apparently. So, you know, that's it. You can go back to photographing wedding parties. But you've realized there's a problem in the system, so maybe what, what have you done to try and rectify that? Well, I made that film that shows you that. But, but um, what are you going to do further? Is there going to be another episode of you? Yeah. I mean, I suppose my critique of that would be that there are, lo are lots of organizations, and I've worked with many of them, who are trying to work with media development to capacity build in, in majority worlds who give the photographers exactly like the ones that you worked with the necessary conceptual and aesthetic and uh, e economic skills to represent themselves in a different way to the classical viewpoint of, you know, which also, I mean, the end, not every photojournalist uh, works in such an abusive or such an exploitative way, and that's certainly true. But there are lots of people doing that and very successfully doing that. And, you know, for example, I work with the World Press Photo Foundation. We've trained or we've given hundreds and hundreds of photographers in the majority world the ability to represent their own worlds in a very, very effective way. And I think, again, as I said, the, for example, the award ceremonies issue, although, the, you know, we can talk for endlessly about how flawed the whole world of photojournalism is, but there was a very large number of photographers from China, Latin America, and Africa represented at, at those awards this year. And undoubtedly, their voice is being heard. Whether it's a different voice, whether they're representing in a different way, is also obviously up for negotiation. But I kind of did feel a little bit that, in a way, what you did, what you just didn't do it well enough. Maybe the reason why they didn't sell their pictures is you were training them in the wrong way. And I think that's sort of part of the, the question mark I would have, really, in, your, in terms of your own effect in that area. 
Because you could probably, if you'd done it slightly differently, actually you could have made them help them make pitches that they may well have been able to, to market on an international circuit. And they well made their 50 bucks that would have made their day, as it were. So I'm just wondering about, you know, sustainability is the key issue in, in, in media development and media training, not kind of going in, trying it once, then leaving it. How do you counteract that? Well, I, I was in the Congo only. I've, I've not traveled in all these other countries. Um, and uh, to be quite honest, I, I, I saw no local photographers having in any way access to that market. And that said, if they would be trained, etc., of course, even if it's black local people making the pictures, then we're still dealing with, you know, it's, it's not the photographer in the end that will dictate what image is going to be in the newspaper. So, um, of course, it would be nicer, and I would really applaud to, from now on, make all these other type of pictures and, and, and publish them. Um, um, and, you know, but anyway, does, yeah. I think it does make a difference. So, I mean, I, I want, you know, one of the striking features of the Iraq War, which I didn't have time to go into in, 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 this, uh, in this talk, is the extent to which Iraqi photographers, uh, you know, bec have become very well known as rep uh, in representing that war. And, you know, you can think of photographers like Haith, uh, Adol Ahad and uh, Khaled Mohamed Hoover, made, uh, as unembedded photographers, very striking uh, images, uh, and uh, uh, images which have a real insight into the character of that war um, and, and the context in which it takes place, um, which I think would not have been possible for Western photojournalists to make, uh, reasons of access and, uh, and cultural knowledge and so forth. So I, you know, I think where, where they, they are able to, to make that work even when they're publishing in the Western press, which is interesting, that there are, there are openings for them to do that, mm. uh, and nevertheless to produce a kind of shift in photojournalistic mm -hmm. meaning. Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, I guess you've partly answered a little bit my question, but um, basically in this talk you've pointed out um, the, the causes for compassion fatigue, the negative aspects of capitalism, and um, the fact that there is something wrong with democracy. And I'd just like to ask, aside from training, um, what are the kind of um, concrete methods that you would say that could, could um, sensitize people again? Um, what, what, could you, what do you say could promote civic activism again? Mm -hmm. Could we have a renaissance in, in what way? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, what, what, is, what are the means through which there can be this galvanization mm -hmm. process? Um, well, I could suggest, because I've been doing quite a lot of work on talent, trying to think through exactly this problem. Um, Certainly, if you look at um, some of the things that are happening at a grassroots level in Africa, things like Ushandi.com, which is this SMS-based mobile phone technology for crisis management, where it emerged out of the Kenyan election violence, where a group of Kenyan uh, and East African activists essentially set up a real-time system whereby people could report human rights abuses, attacks, rapes, killings, and so on, that were then put up into a Google um, what maps kind of interface in real time. And those sorts of citizen-led but professionally aided and managed spaces where I think Jeff Jarvis, who's a professor of, of journalism at, at CUNY, has talked about the shift from the story economy to the link economy in terms of news and, and, and journalism. And this idea that the photograph, I mean, in some ways, the photograph, I think, is, is always invested with too much. We expect too much of the, the photograph and the photographer. But I think the photograph can be a fantastic entry point into these sorts of issues around which you can hang the rest of the story. It can be your, your emotional point of contact. You play into its strengths of an emotional, you know, it gets you, it, it pulls you, it pulls in your heartstrings. 
But then you've got to have somewhere to go after that. And I think that's where the con building a context through particip participatory media, through the, the way that we can add links, we can add more depth to a, a project or more depth to a story, very, very quickly and very, very powerfully using kind of Web 2.0 technology. I think that's potentially a real way to move forward. And you can imagine perhaps a world not that distant future where you know, the, the, the subject, the person being represented, actually is empowered to have a voice. You would photograph them or film them, and they in real time will be able to communicate with the, the audience, the viewer. So typically this sort of relationship of viewer subject to audience could be, could be broken down and a, more, and a more powerful connection where you would literally be communicating directly with the people, the other, the stranger, and making those kind of thin relationships of, of stranger relationships much thicker by using kind of web, you know, social media. I think that's one potential way in which you might start to move forward. Um. Well, that, I think that's where you're wrong, because if you are in the social network, Web 2.0 enabled, you absolutely get a sense of what everyone else is thinking about. Well, when those other bloggers are in Iraq or in Cuba or in Mexico or wherever else, then you're getting a more authentic voice. Of course. Do you want to come to the lady here for a question, please? If we can, front, and I'll go to you, and then I'll come to the one at the back. There. And then. Um, it's at uh, Kate Nash Goldsmith's College. This is actually a similar question following up, but you did actually uh, around kind of. It's, it's interesting that a lot of the comments have been more. Uh, the moral level of what is our relationship to mm. people and what is the photographer's rate. And in a way, the question surely is more how do these pictures work in terms of political organization? And I don't know whether you have any more sort of ideas about that, particularly comparative, because you, Julian, for example, said these pictures, which indeed we do all know, were tied to the Vietnam War protest, which was a very, very strong, especially in the States, so I suppose that, in a way, aren't we expecting too much from pictures? And that actually pictures have to be part of this sort of wider politicization. It's not only a moral question of the relationship. It's also about organization and how these kind of work, how they circulate in, in forms that are more organized. So yeah, I think that there are um, a couple of things which the Vietnam comparison tells us. I mean, we shouldn't overestimate the, the, the force of those pictures. They took a long time to have their effect and to reach, um, you know, mainstream public opinion. And even when they did, uh, one has to say that the, you know, the anti-war movement in the in the U.S. was in the end, I mean, although despite its strength and sustained character, was a failure. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they did have a huge effect uh, over public opinion. And uh, among the two, the things that have changed, I think, is first that there's no uh, organised oppositional view any longer. That you know, there's not a left as there was uh, at the time uh, of the Vietnam War. So it's harder to um, slot these pictures uh, and the sort of discourse that surrounded them uh, into a coherent picture, uh, an oppositional picture. Um, uh, 
Plus, there's the problem of the press itself. Um, and one might argue a problem about uh, democracy and the paralysis people, that people generally feel uh, within uh, uh, um, modern democracies uh, and you know, the long-term decline in political participation uh, and the rise in uh, you know, the model of people as self-fashioning consumers rather than citizens. I guess these are deep, deep issues which go way beyond you know, photojournalism as an industry. Um, uh, and which affects our relationship to these images and to the press as a whole uh, and, and the issues um, that it, it represents. So, over to the lady there, please. Um, I have a question maybe for all of you. Um, I've seen a lot of charities endorsing celebrities and you often see a lot of editorials or uh, stories with pictures. Um, they often look like a setup, like a stage kind of story where the celebrity is posing quite a lot, like touching the elephants and, and going in the environment. And um, I would like maybe you, you could comment in your experience how, how it works. And um, They often try to, to give a message or try to uh, present something that maybe is not real or it's sometimes fake. And, and they occupy a lot of space in, um, in the published magazines or newspapers. And they often come they sell quite quite well and probably take center stage. And, and Lee, do you want to come on that? Um, yes, and I think the fact it connects to Kate's previous question about the potential for politicization in a kind of a mediated landscape where photojournalism is central, of course, um, where, where politics or political discourses might be scarce. And um, I would like to connect the question of, of, of celebrity to perhaps the development I described as post-humanitarian communication in the sense that we are moving, I think, more and more towards a situation whereby aesthetic representation, uh, which reflects our own world, be that the street in the cartoon, um, the uh, poster on our uh, bus stop, or a celebrity we, we readily identify and, and probably like, um, dominate a particular discourse about how we act politically and how we connect with other people. Now, I want to connect that further to a particular, if you like, aesthetic mode of connecting with the world. It's a particular aestheticization of, of reality that moves away from seeing what actually was going on, the kind of you know, photorealistic journalism that, that the Julian Eyre uh, was about. I'm not seeing uh, all, all negative in that. I think it is a sincere move to um, if you like, renew attention and to, to grab, if you like, the kind of sh uh, uh, short span of, of interest that, that consumer publics have today. However, the danger in that is that by over-aestheticizing, celebritizing, or turning into cartoons particular issues that are political, what is happening is we are turning these issues more and more into a particular culture of narcissism, a culture where everything is being measured according to how we feel about things. And I think that is perhaps the most important move of depoliticization. And I'm sorry to say, I, you know, your project is, is aesthetic and it has perhaps the best intentions in terms of cracking open all the contradictions of power and all the asymmetries in relationships between West and, and, and the developing world. But it does, in my view, suffer from that fundamental pathology of the West. It's narcissistic. For it's sure. about That's how you say. are in that world. Uh, we, I'm not, you know, it's not a criticism. As I said, everything we experience today, 
everything we experience today in terms of humanitarian communication goes around that circle. That's it's, why it's, I do it's, it. It's, it's, That's it's, why I do it. Exactly to make your point. That's why I do it. I and say it, it is in important. And it is important, <laughs> therefore, to to analytically approach and theorize those contradictions and see where we go from there. Because this is not enough. Okay. It's good and noble, but not enough. We'll question the back, and then we'll come down, and I'll go to to the front. Apologies if this um, comes across as being some kind of major critique, sorry, of, of your film. Um, what questions are, in fact, following up from what um, Professor Shunyaki has just said is, um, okay, if you accept everything, what happens afterwards? You, were, you had an aim, and where's the action? Because that, that's, what, that's the missing link, to justify using um, those individuals in that way, um, because you I think there's an ethical problem there. You do use individuals in a particular way for a particular purpose. If we could even justify it, there has to it has to lead to something. So what was the purpose? What did it lead to? What are you going to do with your film? Or, as I'm, I'm afraid to say, what we've touched upon before, this is could be seen as another example of um, non-release. You know, this kind of yes. I think just before you come in, Renzo, um, I think actually that's a question for the media and the medium in general, because that is the big question coming out of today is, you know, what is the beyond the photograph or the story or the, the spectacle or the witnessing? It has to lead to something else. And that's, I think, the thing that we need to build is the capacity for that jump from, you know, the witness to the action. And then maybe, Renzo, if you want to come back on, on how you see your film performing in that space. Very good, good, I mean, it's a good case study of someone who's actually producing something is in front of us and we're able to ask, okay, so what what is the purpose? What happened afterwards? Because there's a you know there's a responsibility. I think that that's one word that nobody has 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 used in talking about your film is that you are responsible to those people. So what did you do with the images? I mean Well I think you're very right. We are I am responsible and we all you are You are not we I mean let's just talk about your particular responsibility. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we are. We are he's right. I, we I are all to, responsible. I try to. I try to reveal a certain power system, right. and I think that, to be quite honest, is um, uh, you know these pic people are being photographed all the time, um, and then their pictures are appear in your newspapers and your NGO, etc., etc., all the time, and uh, and they have no agency over that whatsoever. Right. And most of the profits do not go to them, as we all know. Okay, and your um, particular So <coughs> what I, I try to do. From all of that. And I go well, I can't go away from all of that. What, what, what benefit do they get from it? What benefit will they benefit? Well, I don't really want to answer that question. From what you're able to gain from it. I don't so in, in a way, I mean, are you going to some political, I mean, I don't know, are you going to say something about it? Are you going to someone with these images? Or are you actually reproducing things that, I mean, what has been said already? You're actually re reproducing a particular... Yes, I don't really want to answer that question for you because I, if I tell you now, oh, these... I do this and this and that with them, and now they are better off because of my intervention. How then, better um, off? Let's just maybe if, cut this short. If I would do that, the chance to then it and would uh, take it away your responsibility. Sorry, uh, we've we got a lot of people trying to problem. ask questions. Do you mind if we move on? But this, this, this has been done before, and uh, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but it's been done with more finesse as well. You know, sure. okay. I can sit down and talk to you about you know people who have gone to these places and have done. Sorry, maybe we can just move on a little bit to give a few, a few of the chance to ask questions. Sorry, in the centre here. I was very impressed by Sarah. 
Max Hawkins. Question there, or is it where we're coming? Sorry, Max, Max Horton, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, no, th thank you for your comments. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was thinking when people are asking what we should all do um, if we're not satisfied with the way things are, what can cause us to act? And for me, um, I mean, it is the feeling of. Uh, reading something at the same time as looking at pictures, it's never one or the other that, that might um, provide a, an impetus for that. Um, and I think that when it's, you get the sense of an individual's experience uh, really clearly, whether or not in, you know, the, the longest example I showed you was uh, fictionalised, uh, strangely. And in the letters now plays famous men, um, although it's based on fact, uh, it was used in a fictionalised context in that book the names were changed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think something very powerful can happen, and I think that it's, um, it saddens me that in just general newspapers, um, there isn't the scope for that. I mean, we mentioned um, Gaith Abdul Ahad earlier, who uh, the Iraqi photographer and writer, I think, crucially, I just wanted to say, um, because he writes exquisitely. And yeah, his images are, it's, it's about the access. He gets um, access to the Taliban. Uh, he gets access to dancing boys in Afghanistan. Um, that's, that's fantastic. But without his incredibly beautiful, lyrical words to bring this stuff to life, and, and the way because he is Iraqi, he's, he, you know, his perspective is just naturally different. Uh, and uh, I just think that having spaces to report that stuff um, and to be able to read that stuff is essential. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. My name's Adam Grunberg, I'm a photographer and artist, and Lorenzo, we've spoken before about your work, but, and as you know, I have great respect for a lot of what it sets out to achieve and, and what you do explain. Um, and I think one thing your presentation did show, which the others didn't, which is how the making of photographs, the persona that you take on in this film, how, however close it is to you or far away from it, I, I'm not sure. But the persona you do take on enacts the humiliation as part of the process of taking pictures. And we know the Abu Ghraib pictures are partly documenting humiliation, but they are enacting it. And I think that's a very important point, and it comes through very viscerally. What's interesting is just to be in this talk and to see how kind of riled up people get. And I'm sure you've had a world tour of this by now. And and that worries me a little bit because it's kind of a bit Michael Moorish, which is my problem with Michael Moore is that he pretends to come from a left position, but his language is so kind of inflammatory that it actually ne necessarily closes down an analysis. And that's slightly what worries me is that the film is so provocative that it, it doesn't allow for, for kind of slow, deep thought. 
and you get you get this kind of you know angry thing, and you close down and you become defensive, and that's yeah. not helpful to the work. And mm. so it's just, I don't know. No, you're right. It's, it, you're right about being you know closing down me, closing down, and of course also people in the audience being angry. But oftentimes, two days later, people open up again, and so do I. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then. And then we all think something should be done about it, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think to pick up on that and trying to maybe make a slightly more general <coughs> point about this, it's, it's interesting how often in situations of representation like this, where what you're being shown, what actually what's being visualized is horrific or disturbing or suffering. But the question isn't what can we do to alleviate this suffering or change the situation. It's why did you photograph that? Why did the practitioner do that? Why did you not help? So the classic example of that might be the Kevin Carter case that I'm sure many of you are familiar of, where he was a South African photojournalist who photographed a starving child in, in Sudan being watched over by a vulture. Many of you may have seen that photograph. And the question was always, why didn't Kevin Carter go and save that child? Rather than why didn't we, as the entire global Western economy, save that child? The, what's interesting is there's a transference that happens very often in the audience's perceptions of what's going on onto the practitioner. And the practitioner becomes this kind of focal point, or even the photograph becomes this sort of locus, as it were, of this debate, which effectively acts like a shifting of our moral responsibilities. We effectively transfer, I think, our moral responsibility to act onto questioning the photographer's right to be there, or the, the photographer's ethical position in these situations. And I think that's exactly, in a way, what Renzo's film achieves in a very interesting way, that we start arguing about Renzo's activity rather than the things that he's representing. But then I guess what then happens, and I hope what then happens, is you then go through that and you start saying, well, hang on a minute, why am I questioning him when in fact the thing that's there is the thing that we should be acting upon? And that's, I guess, a question about how do we try and break that, that cycle, as it were, of, of representation in a way. Um, we'll take maybe one, two more questions and then we'll... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, well, well I do apologize. You're absolutely right. I haven't seen you. But I will go to one of you up there then. Apologies for that. I don't actually just have a question. It's actually to demonstrate that, I mean, although when I was watching was it Lorenzo's film, I found it uncomfortable. I found it provocative. And I wasn't quite sure where it was going. Is it on? Yeah, it is. OK, okay speak into it, yes. So I found it provocative, and I found it uncomfortable to some extent. But I didn't know where it was going. But in hindsight, I can now see the provo provocation it was trying to provide. And I don't see the value. I mean, obviously. Hopefully it's not just a one time in and then leaving and having no responsibility. We hope you'll carry this further. That's your individual responsibility. But generally this whole political debate is actually for the whole forum. And the whole idea of wasting time and energy attacking Lorenzo, I think we're just transferring our guilt. Mm -hmm. And we need to stop focusing on and focus on how we move forward, mm -hmm. how we make these images rel relative. And the idea of bringing words with images is the only way to move forward because images have no value on their own anymore. So, Lorenzo, well done. Hopefully you move forward. But people, stop transferring your guilt. Very good. 